Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. LMFM Podcasts with CNC Carpets. We bring the showroom to you. Or you can book a personal consultation at our fabulous new showroom in Moortown, Dramiskin. Call 087-660-40-237 or visit our website at cnccarpets.com to book an appointment. CNC Carpets for all your carpet and wood flooring needs. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Good morning. It's Thursday, 15th of September. On the programme this morning, the Dáil resumed after the summer break yesterday with a focus on agreeing measures to support businesses and consumers in the coming months as the cost of living crisis is set to worsen with the very latest. What exactly is Ursula von der Leyen proposing to control the cost of energy and how is she proposing to do just that? Ismi set out their concerns and needs for the coming months and hit out at the increase in the minimum wage. And in case you missed it, the cost of putting fuel into your car has jumped dramatically compared to the same time last year. If you want to contact the programme, you can text or WhatsApp 86 658 here with Alan Cantwell for the next two hours. The Dáil returned yesterday after a nine-week summer break. It faced a series of challenges, including a housing crisis, spiralling energy bills and how to balance the budget amid a cost-of-living emergency. The government's legislative programme consisted of 35 priority bills. The government put forward policies to help people with the rising cost of living during this Dáil term after refusing calls from the opposition to announce measures before the summer recess. Let's get the very latest on developments with our political correspondent Respondent Sean Defoe. Sean, good morning. Thanks for taking our call. Uh, before we get to what transpired during business yesterday, I want to just turn our attention briefly to the revelations this morning in the examiner that Billy Kelleher joins the ranks of Stephen Donnelly and Robert Troy in not registering a property with the Residential Tenancies Board. This just is not going away, Sean, is it? No, it's not. I suppose there's so many landlords among the, the political class, both in the Dáil, the Shannon, and indeed uh, among our MEPs. It was fairly obvious that they were all going to have their, their affairs scrutinised in the event, the, the wake of the Robert Troy resignation. And now Billy Kelleher, as you say, is the latest one to admit that he didn't have a property registered uh, with the RTB. He said that he uh, the property had been left to the same tenant since 2009, but hadn't been registered with the RTB since early 2020. So about two years of uh, a gap there. And obviously in that time is when that new legislation is coming from Darrell O'Brien, his, his party colleague, um, about having to register every year and it being a criminal offence that could attract fines up to €4,000 if they don't do that. Now, there is a loophole in that legislation that landlords who have failed to register it can register it late and pay a late fee and Biddy Kelleher uh, has done that and confirmed that he's done it. So uh, given that I suppose Stephen Donnelly didn't really face any sort of a sanction, Biddy Kelleher has now come out and admitted that this is the case uh, and said that I'm, I'm not going to go anyway uh, further than the Robert Troy situation um, unless of course there is, there is more to come out about his, uh, his landlord holding. 
Well, one would have hoped from the perspective of Micheál Martin that a line would have been drawn under this after the Robert Troy incident and he ultimately fell on his sword. It it comes at a bad time considering what's going on in government and we're trying to get the the ship steadied uh, as we head into a very difficult winter, Sean, does it not? No, it does. But also, like, there isn't really any sort of apology from Fianna Fáil. I mean, Robert Troy has made his own apology for just the series of mistakes he's made. But you just have to look at the Fianna Fáil thinking where uh, Robert Troy arrived with the Taoiseach in his car, was right next to him uh, for the entirety of the, the first press conference. Like, it was a very show, a very strong show of support from the Taoiseach to Robert Troy, despite his resignation. Now, obviously, I think it was in Mullingar, it was in Robert Troy's uh, back garden. But still, he didn't have to do that and made a point of, of standing by him and supporting him. So I think that for the Taoiseach's point, of view, he doesn't think anything wrong w- was was done here, and that ultimately it was Robert Troy's own decision to resign. So, I, I, but I think that is sending a wider message out to people and does put more pressure on the on the government as we head into the budget. Remember, last year's budget did absolutely nothing for renters. There was not a single yeah. thing in it for people who are renting. There's a lot more pressure on this year for them to deliver. Talks of maybe a tax credit or something else for renters. But it is one of those areas that is also getting squeezed in the budget by the wider cost of living crisis. And I think this is going to be one of the themes when, when the budget is announced in two weeks. A lot of the projects in the likes of housing and health and other areas that might otherwise be done might be pushed okay. aside by the wider crisis. Okay, let Let's deal with what we know as a result of the door resuming yesterday, and it's never possible to definitively say what's going to be in a budget, but are we any closer to understanding what may be there following yesterday's uh, resumption of the Doyle, Sean? Yeah, well, there was a few few bits of light, I think, that were, were sort of interesting yesterday out of it. Obviously, the big row leaders' questions was over the energy crisis and what the government was going to do, and there was a motion in the door last night from uh, Sinn Féin who were calling for energy, for bills to be capped effectively at 2021, and levels and the, the government has rejected that, the Taoiseach rejected it and the Dáil saying it would be writing a blank cheque for the en- energy companies because effectively uh, you can promise all you like and say right people won't have to pay more than this but the money is still going to have to be made up unless you let the energy companies go bust so effectively the government would be signing off on something with absolutely no idea of how much it would cost and that was the challenge that he put to Mary Lou Macdonald and to others who have suggested about price caps is well cost it first, how in the name of, how could we possibly uh, know how much this is going to cost and we could set aside two three, four, five billion, but it might cost eight, nine, ten billion because no one knows where the price of energy is going. So it looks very much as though the government is going to instead go down the route instead of price caps of uh, giving money to people in the forms of energy credits in the form of extra payments on social welfare and those kind of things that we expected. What is going to be interesting and what you're seeing I think here a lot in the last 24 hours with the, um, the rise in the minimum wage that you talked about is the pressure on businesses and you've heard a lot of them, uh, the, the owner of the Ormond Hotel in Kilkenny for example was on this morning saying that last year the and last year their energy bills for a month was €21,000. This year it was €60,000, a threefold increase in their energy bills. And you're hearing that from a lot of businesses, something that's just absolutely not sustainable. And while Leo Varadkar has promised a package that is comparable to the support that they gave to businesses during COVID. I thought it was interesting last night during uh, a budgetary oversight committee, Pascal Donna, who said that you can't treat every crisis like COVID because if you did, the country would be broke. You just can't have that level of intervention. So there does seem to be okay. still a bit of a tug of war between what ministers want to give and what Pascal Donoghue is willing to hand out. It was interesting to listen to pa- Pascal Donoghue. He's almost adamant that when it comes to the VAT rate, that is going to change for the hospitality sector, restaurants, pubs and hotels. The special 9% has been there for a considerable period of time. 
you know, hoteliers came in for a lot of stick over price gouging. And now it seems that the chickens are coming home to roost, that that figure is going to be increased to in around 13.5%. Will that wash, given the present circumstances that many people in the hospitality industry are facing? I think it's going to cause a huge amount of anger among them because while there was, I think, definitely an element of price gouging, particularly around Dublin, you couldn't say that every hotel in the country is price gouging. There's a lot of uh, hotels in, in country areas and rural areas who say, well, we didn't do that. We increased our prices a little bit to help deal with the extra cost, but that they haven't gone and charged some of the exorbitant rates that we've seen around events like the Garth Brooks um, concerts and like the All-Ireland Finals mm-hmm. in, in Dublin. So I think a lot of people who are genuinely struggling will be very angry seeing that in the papers this morning, that the actions of a, of a few or maybe what they might be considered to be a minority in the industry are going to affect them. But it was something that Pascal Dunne, who was, was nearly apoplectic at when it did happen, and it's on the front page of the Examiner again this morning, certainly that seems to be the direction of travel. It, it will be damaging for the Irish tourism sector, there's no doubt about that, particularly as people could travel abroad again and have been doing so in numbers over the summer. So I think that was that is a, a particular measure which, if it goes ahead, is going to cause a, a lot of upset. Now, is it reasonable to accept what we're reading if we're led to believe what Michael McGrath is saying, that we could potentially get a thousand euro extra in tax cuts and USC cuts? Is that really realistically on the cards on the basis of what we know in terms of the figures that are being bandied about? It's hard to know if it will be to that level and I think it will sort of depend on your circumstances, uh, whether or not you're going to, to fall into that that excuse me, that high a number. What The one that hasn't been worked out yet and that will probably make the most impact on people's pockets is what they're going to do with regard to income tax. And yesterday, Leo Baradker was saying he doesn't believe this idea of a new 30% rate of income tax is entirely dead and indeed that he is still pushing for it behind the scenes. And that is a that a measure that would straight away put about €1,000 a year back into, into the pockets of almost a million people. The, the pushback on that has come from Fine Gael and from the Greens who say that by indexing the tax Band, by changing the point at which you start to pay either the lower rate or then the higher rate of tax, you will benefit more people, but not by as much. It might be 300, 400 euro a year back, but it might be for 2 million people rather than 1 billion. That's the sort of wrangling that's still going on behind the scenes. That's the one that I think will affect pockets directly. Then when you add up the other credits, I mean, if they're talking about two different energy credits at 200 euro each, that's another 400 euro mm-hmm. back into your pockets. So you could see how they could fairly credibly make that argument. But of course, in that time, energy bills are probably still going to go up again. So while you're getting that back, it's sort of offset against the rising cost of living. Now, the situation we're faced uh, is almost unprecedented in that it's fluid. We don't know where we're going to be in six, eight, twelve months' time. Now, there were calls, as you remember, prior to the summer recess for an emergency budget. Would you anticipate that perhaps in the first or second quarter of next year, we may have to revisit the financial well-being of our country and perhaps look at the possibility of other budgetary measures? There'll definitely be calls for it. There's uh, no doubt about that. We're having this this budget early because there needs to be measures towards the end of this year. The, Michael McGrath and indeed uh, the Tornish last night speaking privately to his parliamentary party sort of said, look, yeah, we may need to have a look at other measures early on next year and that maybe it is worth keeping something in reserve at the moment now to see how things play out over the winter and just how much further they have to intervene. Where that might come from is this idea of the European-wide windfall tax on the energy companies because Michael McGrath said last night it's pro- the numbers on that, the how much Ireland is going to get, we probably won't know in time for yeah. the budget in two weeks' time. So they're not going to be able to factor that in 
to what they announce on budget day. But if that su- a sudden windfall that comes, be it whatever is quoted, sort of anywhere between two or three billion euro at the higher end of things, then that is something that maybe you could do a further intervention in November, December, or even early into the new year. It's essentially free money that you can take a punt on. So I do think there, there will probably have to be further interventions in the winter if things get as bad as they could get. But at the moment now, they just have to play what's in front of them. Okay. Just going back to that windfall tax coming from the EU, figures of around two billion have been bandied about since Ursula von der Leyen uh, uh, made her her address yesterday. That's a grossly over-optimistic figure, is it not, Sean? It's unlikely we're going to get something in the region of that. Well, it depends on what, how much the, the EU could actually raise. She's talking about a pot of 140 billion euro divided between the 29 countries. And, and you know, sort of typically, uh, the cut of that that we could expect may be in the region of 2 billion euro. But there are huge question marks yeah. over whether or not they can actually raise that money. And I actually have a, a podcast out this morning, and let me explain podcasts that I do, about just how difficult the windfall tax is to actually implement. The countries that have, have tried to bring it in, in Spain and Italy, have really, really struggled to actually get the energy companies uh, to pay it. The UK has gone down a different route of doing it uh, towards people who uh, and companies who extract fossil fuels which obviously we don't have in Ireland so we're kind of relying on them targeting the more the bigger European companies whether or not that's going to be successful and whether or not it's going to actually deliver that sort of money is a very very open question because it's a very tricky thing to do so I I would say you would have to sort of hedge the bets and expect that it is going to be less than 2 billion euro and anything less than 2 billion euro I mean it's great to get it it sounds like a lot of money on paper but when you start delving into the the interventions that people actually need. Uh, for example, Dara Cassidy of Bonkers.ie has been mm-hmm. quoted as saying that if you were to bring the electricity and gas bills back to where they were at the start of 2021, that measure alone will cost somewhere in the region of four or five billion euros. So, you're, you know, one billion doesn't go as far as you would think it would. OK, before I let you go, Sean, I just want to draw your attention to uh, a poll in the Irish Daily Mail this morning. Third of people believe Taoiseach Michael Martin should lead Fianna Fáil into the next general election. I know we discussed this on Monday, but it's looking like the weight of opinion publicly certainly is not on his side. No, and I don't think it's on his side within the party either. Speaking to people in the last couple of days, the sort of new key data is emerging really for Mino Martin of their Ardesh at the end of this month. I think there's a, a certain expectation that they got through the thinking. They weren't a lot of backbench TDs in particular weren't really happy with how the Fianna Fáil thinking went because they think that Mihal Martin just simply is not listening to them. He's not listening to the grassroots in Fianna Fáil. And when the Taoiseach said that, you know, people need to stop this navel gazing about the party and get on with the business of governing, he might be right in that in a lot of people, I think a lot of the public would think, yeah, maybe that's exactly what you need to do, make our lives better instead of worrying about your political wrangling. But those people who are trying to seek re-election next time out and wondering whether they're going to lose their receipts as a result of the Hall Martin are thinking very differently. So I think the end of this month is sort of emerging as a new key date for someone within the party to actually put up their hand. Because so far, the thing that has really saved me, Hall Martin, is that he has no clear challenger. There's no one like a Jim O'Callaghan or a Barry Cowan or a Dara O'Brien or Michael McGuire or any of the names that are sort of suggested. None of them have stepped forward and really put their hand up and said, yeah, I want it and I'm going to, to get rid of you after your, your time as Taoiseach is done. That's obviously a sensitive thing. We know the old adage, he who wields the knife rarely wears the crown. Of course. But it is getting towards that, you know, sort of um, uh, the go or get off the pot sort of a thing for, for those in Vinifold who might want to replace him. Well, as you say, it's early days and a lot of those people will be waiting in the, in the long grass, waiting for that particular opportunity. But I presume the conversations on the margins of the thinking were uh, discussing the future of the party, the future of the, of the leader, those those conversations will grow in the next few months, won't they, Sean? 
They will grow, um, and they are happening. They're all talking about it. Yeah. But the reason that someone, usually when you see this sort of thing, there, there is someone really manoeuvring behind the scenes. You saw Leo Varadkar do it ahead of, the, you know, trying to get rid of Enid Kennedy and then becoming the, the Fine Gael leader. You've seen Fianna Fáil leaders do it in the past. Someone on the so-called chicken and chip circuit um, of actually going around the party faithful, trying to drum up support. But certainly as far as I can tell from talking to people in the parliamentary party, there isn't someone who's really doing that and building a campaign behind them. And if they are going to want to be Fianna Fáil, leader that's what you have to do Sean before you go and you mentioned it briefly yourself your podcast let me explain it's a super podcast where can people get it uh, thanks for uh, Alan so it's available at all good podcasts <laughs> non-reputable non- podcast providers as well and I have a podcast on newsthought.com it's called Let Me Explain and this week's episode as I said uh, is in relation to the windfall tax and just the real kind of complications of how we might do that in Ireland so you can uh, check it out and subscribe now and, uh, and have a listen Super Sean Defoe thanks so much for joining us and do check out that podcast Let Me Explain Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. The European Union will propose measures to cap revenues from low-cost electricity generators and force fossil fuel firms to share the profits they make from soaring energy prices. In her State of the Union address, the European Commission President, Ursula von der Leyen, said wind and solar farms and nuclear plants would face a cap of €180 per megawatt hour on the revenue they receive for generating electricity. That would cap generators' revenues at less than than half of the current market price. Well, joining us this morning to discuss in detail the con- uh, content of that address is Karen Coleman, editor EU News Radio that covers EU news for Irish radio stations. Karen Coleman, good morning to you. Good morning, Alan. There's only one question, I suppose, on everyone's lips this morning following Ursula von der Leyen's address yesterday, and that is how much are we going to get? We don't really know. I mean, that's the reality, Alan, and I think. Figures have been banded about, for example, the EU suggesting a figure of 140 billion could be clawed back through those windfall taxes you refer to there, the the taxes on um, low electricity producing companies um, and excess revenues that they're earning. But that's based on, I think, it being rolled out over a period of 12 months. And initially, Ursula von der Leyen yesterday was talking about electricity uh, cuts up to March uh, 2023. Um, And also in terms of how much, for example, individual EU member states would get from those windfall taxes, that again depends on where those energy producing companies are based because it's where they're based, it's where the revenues will come. Um, So obviously for countries that have a lot of low cost electricity producing uh, companies, they'll get the revenues from them. But in Ireland's case, I think something like two thirds of our energy comes from outside the country. Mm -hmm. So it may be the case that we wouldn't get an awful lot from those taxes and from companies that are producing power here at low costs. Okay, I know I know that um, the whole notion of a cap, uh, it, it certainly gained a lot of momentum in this country and other European uh, countries, but there doesn't seem to be an appetite amongst energy ministers certainly to go down that road. Is, is that still the case? Well, they, the energy ministers now will meet. I think the scheduled meeting is the 30th of September, where they're all going to meet. And they will, of course, in the meantime, they will have been assessing the proposals from the European Commission um, and then they will get together and they'll make a decision. There has been reluctance in terms of introducing caps but then at the same time Alan as we well know 
energy prices here are absolutely skyrocketing and people, you know, there's a real danger for businesses and whether they'll be able to survive. Households are being hit with huge bills and for those who are on low incomes, those bills are excessive. So there's no question that emergency measures will have to be introduced to help those who are struggling with those bills. And while caps on revenues may not necessarily be something that would normally be introduced under normal circumstances, I think you will find that energy ministers will have to consider them and may well have to introduce them. What's your own view in terms of how Europe is handling this crisis uh, over the past number of months? They're doing a good job, do you think? Do you mean just specifically in just terms of not, not necessarily yeah. over fuel, just in terms of the leadership they are showing to try and bring certainty and confidence to the bloc? Well, it's very difficult and it's very challenging. And as we see, of course, over in Ukraine, things are changing a lot um, and may change perhaps positively in terms of maybe uh, the, the Russian troops beginning to have to be forced out of Ukraine. It is very challenging and especially in terms of the energy crisis and what to do. I think the Commission is trying to come up with proposals that will be acceptable by all 27 member states. That's very challenging. There are different views among the EU countries and what leaders are doing in terms of how they're going to help consumers deal with the likes of the energy prices. That's going to vary as well. I mean, I think typically as things happen when we are faced with extraordinary crises, you know, they cobble along, they eventually agree to things. I mean, I think if you look back at the pandemic, we handled it well in terms of all of the countries pulling together to try and roll out vaccines, to try and mitigate against the circumstances that arose because of the pandemic. This is arguably a more serious situation now with the energy crisis creating an awful lot of problems, um, although hopefully people won't be losing their lives like they did during the pandemic. So I'd say mixed, Alan, would be my answer to that. As always, you know, they're very challenging circumstances. We have to pull together and try to get agreement on some of these things Mm -hmm. and try and now mitigate against the circumstances of increasing soaring energy costs, which is going to make it very difficult for businesses and people over the coming months. Now, we tend to be somewhat insular in terms of looking at situations and how they're unfolding and how they affect countries individually as as opposed to looking at the bigger picture. And we do that in Ireland. We look to our own government. But how constrained are our government by virtue of them being members of the EU and having to adhere to protocol from the EU to implement um, initiatives in their own country, which they may want to do, but just can't do that. And people sometimes forget that. Oh, well, of course, that's that's the kind of way the EU works. It's 27 member states. They have to come together. They have to try and reach agreement on issues. It's very difficult and very challenging. And they, they tend to, to, to get there somewhat along the way. Um, and this, again, is going to be difficult. Then you have countries like Poland and Hungary doing their own thing. Their own thing, yeah. And democratic rights. This is an issue that's coming up time and time again. Particularly, you know, you'll hear it in debates in the European Parliament, um, and 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 that is always difficult when it comes to getting agreement from the likes of Hungary, in particular, we'll say on, on certain issues. Um, 
But in terms of Ireland, let's say if we talk about the energy crisis now, and this is going to be a significant meeting, this meeting of energy ministers at the end of September to try and reach an agreement now on what they're going to do with the energy crisis. I mean, as I said, the Commission comes up with the proposals. They will not appeal to everybody. Um, They're going to have to row in. Ireland is going to be challenged in the sense that a lot of the potential revenues that could be raised from those windfall taxes on companies producing energy at low costs, a lot of them will be based not inside Ireland, outside. And there was talk yesterday from um, the Commission about, you know, solidarity and that countries that might make money from um, those windfall taxes that maybe they could be distributed to countries where they don't have companies producing Mm -hmm. low-cost electricity. So there will be a lot of hard bargaining, I would imagine, in the weeks ahead, Alan, in terms of trying to see where help could be given to countries where they may not benefit so much from those revenues. But, you know, it's the usual. They'll get together. They'll discuss these things behind uh, closed doors. They'll try and get some, reach some kind of an agreement. There will be inevitably compromises that will suit some and won't suit others. But that's the way the EU <laughs> operates. But no but is it is it is it your view then? We'll have to wait till the end of this month before we get any certainty around what it will mean for us in terms of some form of financial subvention. Um, well, yes, in terms of an overall agreement, because the EU member states have to now sign off on those proposals. Well, first of all, they're going to have to discuss them and they're going, ha- going to have to see what elements of the proposals announced yesterday. Um, will they accept? They may take all of them. They may not. Um, they may decide to change or to tweak some of them. Um, and then they're, they are going to have to sign off on them. Um, and then, of course, they will have to be implemented. Mm-hmm. The, the time frame is short here because the Commission proposals on, on certain aspects of, of, of the proposals yesterday, so the mandatory reduction in consumption of electricity during peak hours, the Commission is proposing a 5% mandatory reduction and then overall a 10% reduction in electricity consumption uh-huh. in each EU member state up until March next next year. Now, there isn't a lot of time for that to be implemented. So in over the next two weeks or so, the member states, so Ireland, for example, the Department of Energy, will no doubt be going through now um, all of the proposals. They'll have got them in advance yesterday, presumably anyway. Um, And they'll have to come up with their line and then they'll get together during those meetings in September. And I presume they will have to make, have an agreement pretty soon after that because you're talking about a short time frame here for these things to kick in so that they'll be implemented and in place until the end of next okay. March. Very good. Karen Coleman, editor of EU News Radio. Thank you for joining us this morning. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. The energy crisis, Gráinne from Drogheda, listening to your coverage on how the rise in electricity prices is already impacting on business. It's a huge worry. Job losses are the last thing anyone wants, especially with the rise in the cost of living. Many ordinary workers are extremely concerned about how they are going to pay the bills to heat the light in their homes. The budget cannot come soon enough to see 
what help the government is going to give us. This was, uh, yeah, from yesterday, Orlo O'Connor's interview yesterday from the National Women's Council. David in Dundalk says, it's all very well talking about gender equality, but I run a sewage company and I've done so for the past 30 years, but I've yet to get an application from a woman to do a job or to answer a vacancy advertisement. There are some jobs that women just don't want, David thinks. He firmly believes that it should be the best person to get the job. But is it women that are only looking for the cushy jobs? His word, not not mine. And he wants to know that. I'm saying this as a parent of a daughter who believes in equality. He says equality. I tell you what, cushy jobs for women, I don't know, but I remember my wife raising two kids and working from the home. That ain't cushy. I wouldn't touch it with a barge pole. Anyone thinks thinks that women want cushy jobs, you're not hiding for nothing there. Now, a new survey has found diesel is 30% more expensive than it was a year ago. The AA says the average price of a litre of diesel now stands at €1.95 while petrol lies at €1.84 per litre, which is 18% higher than in September 2021. It now costs the average petrol driver €2,234 to fill the car annually, which is €346 more than 12 months ago. Diesel owners face bills of up to €440 higher due to the rise in the cost of fuel. Joining us this morning is Paddy Cummins, Head of Communications with AA. Paddy, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Um, We don't really need a survey to understand how things have changed so dramatically over the past 12 months. But what it is interesting uh, about it is it pretty much focuses the mind when you drill it down to pounds, shillings and pence. Yeah, I think, Alan, it was it was something that we introduced a little while ago, looking at the how much it costs relative to you know what it was a year ago. These are very average prices as well. So if you look at their average mileage, rather, so if you look at the average motors just doing about seventeen thousand kilometres per year, for lots of diesel drivers in particular, and you know particular people who commute, they do a lot more than that. So the costs are even higher. So so look, it does indicate that overall people are just spending an awful lot more money just to get around so these are you know these are average costs but people uh, you know and your listeners will be spending an awful lot more just to get around you know to work and and unfortunately there aren't you know great alternatives for many people in terms of public transport just looking at the particular survey and tracking the prices has there been significant fluctuation in prices of fuel or have they more or less been on the margins there or thereabout the prices we're seeing now are just about on par with where we were in March last year. Now, that was, if you remember, the time when the story really started kicking off in terms of fuel pricing and people were starting to look at prices edging towards €2 per litre for petrol. And they did. They peaked around June at at 2.13 for petrol and and €2.02 for diesel on average. Now, there were measures brought in by the government in terms of excise duty and and obviously the market started to settle down a little bit. But yeah, we are are still now at what would have been a record um, just in March. But they're still high, but we are seeing now and our things start to stabilise a little bit, but they're stabilising at quite a high cost. Explain to us, Paddy, how it works in terms of a decision taken by the supplier to increase costs and how that then permeates down to the consumer who goes to the pump. Well, it, it, there are lots of variations and, uh, you know, this was brought up at an office committee around March, April when um, there were question marks over fuel retailers about you know about the the costs. It depends on the retailer, really, Alan. So if you had a small retail retailer in Terminfec and they might only take uh, a fuel delivery once a week, whereas on the M1 
those two big apple greens either side of, of the of the motorway might take five or six deliveries per day. So it depends when the retailer orders the fuel. So the the price you're paying at the pump might have been fuel ordered, you know, a month ago. Yeah. Where in some cases it could be it could be recent delivery. The government, when they introduced the uh, you know the excise duty reduction, that obviously disappeared quite quickly. But um, if there was something like a VAT reduction, which you know probably doesn't seem likely, that would be something that would happen at the till and would be seen in your pocket effectively immediately. So, but really, it just depends on where you're buying your fuel. Okay, so essentially, the small operator who has that one fill maybe a week or twice a week, they have to wait then till that particular level of fuel in their tanks is gone before they either reduce or increase prices. Is that correct? Because they they yeah. paid for that tanker at a certain price and they have to get that back. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, what we're starting to see, in, you know, certainly in the south of the country, in particular in Cork, we started seeing all, effectively a price war happening where retailers were, were taking a bit of a bath on the fuel just to get people in to buy the coffee or the chicken fillet roll, etc. Because, you know, the fuel retailers would say that they make very, very little money on the fuel itself. And often the figure that I hear bandied about is that they make more profit on the coffee um, that you buy rather than 70 euro of fuel that you would buy. Okay, you're probably closer to it than most of us. Um, In relation to the future, what is your expectation when it comes to the cost of fuel? I think, you know, it's very difficult to predict these things, but for now, I think we we are entering a period of stabilisation. Now, when I say stable, as I mentioned, these costs, these prices that we're seeing now would have had us jumping up and down in March last year. But um, we might be in a, a position where we're starting to see prices stay under the two euro per litre for a while. Um, but look, there's lots of factors at play. Um, but but I think for now we will see things reasonably stable f- for the time being. OK, is there any positives out of this, Paddy? And I think of it from the point of view of an acceleration in the sales of electric uh, vehicles. Are we now clearly understanding that we have to move away from fossil fuels? We do, but I guess the difficulty for, for in terms of electric vehicles are that the supply isn't great at the moment. Like, like every uh, new vehicle, electric vehicles in particular, took a hit in terms of um, chips. Um, and, mm-hmm. and you know, there's, but the sales have increased dramatically. There, 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 there was an eighty percent increase in uh, EV sales compared to last year. Yeah, albeit that was off a very small base. Yeah, a very small number. But but you have to also start looking at the the price of electricity, which is increasing. Now we we will see electricity increasing to about forty three cents per kilowatt hour, which means still that to run an electric vehicle is about, still about half of what a, a petrol or diesel car would be. But if we got to a situation where electricity went as far as 75 uh, cents per kilowatt hour. You now would be looking then at it costing the same to run that car that as a petrol or diesel car. However, obviously there's a, a emission saving, but we're, n- we're, we're nowhere there, there yet, but it is driving people towards EV that we've done surveys before, and the main reason people are moving towards EV is the cost uh, of petrol or diesel. Very good. Paddy Common, Head of Communications with AA Ireland. Thank you for joining us. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. LMF.
FM. Welcome back to the programme. 43% of adults in Ireland agree if they needed to receive palliative care, they would not have enough information to enable them to have conversations or make decisions about their care. The finding is from a new survey of the public's perceptions of palliative care and were commissioned by All-Ireland Institute of Hospitals and Palliative Care to highlight Palliative Care Week, which runs this week. Karen Charlie, Director of the All-Ireland Institute of Hospitals and Palliative Care, joins us online this morning. Karen, good morning. Thank you for joining us. Um, I, I have to be absolutely honest with you, um, Karen. I probably fall into that 43%. To me, palliative care is not a very good outcome in terms of what the next step is. Is that a reasonable assessment in terms of what you are hearing from people? Well, I think there's a lot of misconceptions uh, about palliative care, and that's why we have Palliative Care Week. And um, and I think the theme um, of this year's campaign feeds into what you're talking about. Like this year's theme is palliative care, living as well as possible. And it reflects how palliative care looks to positively support people with life-limiting conditions and their families by putting them at the centre of the care and supporting their physical, social, emotional and spiritual needs, allowing them to live as fully as they can. Look, I don't think we can take away that obviously being diagnosed with a life-limiting condition is is very difficult for people. But what we want to do is, um, you know, uh, um, raise awareness of the benefits of palliative care and that people can be in receipt of palliative care and support for a, 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 a number of years and it doesn't just mean end of life and the last weeks and days. Okay, presumably, well, first of all, define what exactly is palliative care? Well, palliative care is um, care for people with life-limiting conditions and it aims to meet their physical, so pain management, symptom management, their social, spiritual, emotional needs and it also helps uh, the person's family and their friends. So it aims to be like holistic care that kind of wraps around a person and looking to meet those wide range of needs. So I suppose even in terms of supporting people with planning ahead and thinking about where would they want to be cared for do they want to be cared for in a home a hospice you know in a nursing home in a hospital you know where it's helping them planning ahead for their future care needs but also their future uh, you know maybe um uh, relations with families mm. and that kind of now thing. it Having doesn't difficult conversations it doesn't necessarily mean that this particular care happens uh, in a home or in a hospital it can be at home can't it it can. So the well, and, and I suppose to say, like people's GPs and uh, primary care, you know, say the uh, public health nurses, you know, can support people with palliative care. But there is also specialist palliative care services, and there's community palliative care teams, uh, nurses that can support people in their homes, through to in the hospice and inpatient unit as well. So, and, at, at what at what point does a patient or an individual? look at the possibility of trying to seek palliative care. Are they informed that that is a a decision that they must take by a GP or do they just know themselves or how does it work? I suppose often it's in discussions, as you say, with uh, with their health professionals. So it could be someone who, say, uh, has... And actually, we uh, met with a man the other day. He was talking about he has advanced cancer. Um, he had um, difficulties with managing his pain and he was referred through from his oncologist through to a palliative medicine consultant. The consultant was able to support him with controlling that pain. He gave him um, a new medication and then he was discharged from the service. 
Uh, now, after a number of years, um, his symptoms have progressed and his um, circumstances have changed. And he's now looking to be referred back into those palliative care services. So I suppose that often palliative care services can be a, a support to, say, if someone's under the uh, treatment uh, under the care of an oncologist or a heart specialist or a um, uh, neurologist um, and also then in contact with the uh, GPs as well. What we'd encourage is if people have an understanding of what palliative care is then that then when it's mentioned to them they may not be as worried about Mm. it and might be more willing to accept those services Um, and if also, if someone feels uh, that they could benefit from palliative care, that they may discuss it with the health professionals that they're in contact with and look for that referral through to the team. Well, can I ask you then of some of the conversations that people have who are somewhat challenged when it comes to their understanding of what palliative care is? What's their perception or view of it? Well, I think often when people hear that, you know, oh, um, you know, say if a, we're thinking of referring your food to uh, palliative care, people are scared of that and think, oh, you know, it's the final weeks, it's the final days. Um, you know, people, um, there's an apprehensive apprehension about it. Even if people are, I know maybe within my own family, like um, being asked to visit a hospice, people can be nervous because they don't know what, that's even visiting someone within a hospice, people can be nervous and they don't want to, the, um, you know that they're worried about what they may find, and look, we're we're looking to um, address some of those misconceptions, and I suppose assure people, and really highlight the benefits of, that the services can deliver to people with life-limiting conditions and their families. Just on that point of services, is there the view that what? the requirements of people are sufficiently met by virtue of services which are available or do we find situations where some people requiring palliative care may not be able to access it? Yeah, but there is a growing need for palliative care and I suppose that's in part due due to an ageing population as well in the Republic of Ireland. At the moment, uh, the Department of Health is currently developing a new palliative care policy for adults. It's due to be published early into 2023. The current policy uh, dates back to 2001 and whilst it's held up as being a, a you know, a, an exemplar policy. Obviously, it's um, becoming quite old now. So um, there is a growing need for palliative care, and I suppose there's a con- there's a real focus at the moment about how the services can be continue to be developed to meet those needs across all areas of the country. Do you find that you know that sense of trepidation or concern amongst individuals, family and individuals requiring palliative care, essentially evaporates when they get into the system and they recognise that you know it's not what we, we, we thought it would be. I think, um, yeah, the services, you know, once people are uh, in the services, and it could be, I'm, I'm thinking of another gentleman uh, that I came into contact, he, um, his, um, he, he had, again, had advanced cancer, even though uh, palliative care can be available for a wide range of conditions, but he had advanced cancer. He wasn't able to drive anymore. He was referred into palliative care. He was very nervous, but he went in for some respite care into an inpatient unit, and over a period of weeks, they were able to kind of assess his symptoms, manage his symptoms, and he was able to uh, return home, and he, he rented a car for uh, a good few months, um, 
you know, so he's able to, uh, I suppose the focus of us on, of palliative care is focusing on what people can do rather than what pe- people can't do. And the focus of, you know, what people can do and I suppose uh, be that hobbies, spending time uh, with families, doing things that they enjoy. Now, obviously, there's limitations. You know, people have have life-limiting conditions and may be impacted by their symptoms that they're having, but it's that focus of their lens of, you know, living as well as possible. Mm -hmm. Clearly, the focus is ultimately on the patient, the patient's needs and their requirements and their own personal needs as well. So I say that in the context of somebody who's in palliative care, who's probably coming towards the end of life and they require a huge degree of um, of care but they don't want to be in care they want to be at home do you dissuade people from going home because of what their requirements of care are or would you encourage it I think with palliative care, what they look to do is um, like uh, that people have the option of being cared for where they want to be cared for and that they look to wrap the services around them. So a, a large number of people are cared for at home with the palliative care home care team and other services that are available throughout the health services uh, coming into them. I suppose it's all about thinking through where's the best place for them to be cared for based on what symptoms they have. Where can they get the best support and what important to them uh, in terms of where they want to be um, yeah I suppose palliative care would often try and support people you know maybe it is that um, relations with family members for example uh, may have broken down you know uh, in different circumstances and palliative care look into doesn't just support that physical but also those both social emotional and spiritual mm. needs Looking at uh, palliative care and how it operates in Ireland and how successful or otherwise it is, what's your own view on, on how we, we are, are getting to grips with it? I think uh, there was a study done uh, by the uh, Economist um, publication and it found that Ireland was the second best in the world. Um, I think there's always room for improvement. There's always room for further, in, you know, for further investment as well. But uh, I do think Ireland uh, is doing well with palliative care. But like I say, um yeah, we we need to keep moving forward as well. Just before I leave you, Karen, I want to talk to you a little bit about, and I've no doubt that there are people listening to this uh, interview this morning who are in that very position that they may have to ultimately make that decision whether to send somebody they know or love into palliative care. But is, is there somewhere they can go to get the relevant and necessary information? We have a lot of information available on the palliativehub.com. That's the palliativehub.com. And a wide range of information available there. And we have websites linked to that that have specific information for, for um, parents and families of children, parents, uh, and then uh, a website, uh, the Adult Palliative Hub, uh, for people uh, with life limiting conditions and their families. So a lot of information. But what I'd also encourage people to do is talk to their health professionals. I don't think it's so much sending someone into palliative care. I think it's that the services are, are there when the need arises and um, and and that they they are you know they're great services to support people at difficult times. Very good, Karen Cranley, director of the All Ireland Institute of Hospice and Palliative Care, joining us this morning. Thank you for that. I thought it was interesting. Second best in the world. I'll take that all day. 
Welcome back to the programme. An increase to the minimum wage will lead to reduced hours for workers. That's according to the CEO of ISME, Neil MacDonald, who made the comments as the Cabinet endorsed an 80 cent rise in the minimum wage. It will bring it to 11.30 an hour, effective from January of next year. But Mr MacDonald said it's completely understandable that people under huge cost of living pressure at the moment are going to look to close the gap. Neil MacDonald, CEO of ISME, joins us this morning. Um, Neil, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Of course, this wasn't a case where the government were sitting around one afternoon and saying we have to increase it. This has been in the mix for some time. It just so happens this is the time that it was going to happen. So it's probably badly timed more than anything else, is it not? Yes. Uh, good morning, Alan. The the Low Pay Commission is a standing body uh, and it makes these uh, recommendations on an annual basis and it does so looking at the cost of living. So it is completely understandable that it comes out with these recommendations because usually the national minimum wage is adjusted in January, and, and we have no quibble with the methodology they apply, nor actually with with the amount uh, they have recommended, which is in in line with with what's happening at the moment. The issue is, though, that if unfortunately, if we think that minor adjustments like this to the national minimum wage are the solution, then. The, the thing is, an awful lot of people are going to be disappointed because the problem is is the rising cost of living, and specifically, on, until we got into this very recent energy crisis, which which has befallen us because of the Ukraine war, um, the standout issue for people has been the cost of housing. And if we don't actually address that issue, then you know you're you're only tre- treating symptoms yeah. rather than the. Yeah, look, look we, we all know, Neil, that there's so many variables at work here and to try and bring them all together and and resolve them is practically impossible. But the reality is that we have to deal with that 80 cent rise, what it means for your members. And historically, it would have meant that you pass that on to the consumer. Correct. Um, and, and, you know... <laughs> One of our, our retail members told me recently that if he passed on all the, the electricity price rises he had experienced, for example, his, his groceries would go up 5%. So these costs don't disappear into some magic hole where they don't impact anything else. For small businesses, uh, our members sell to consumers or to other businesses and they recover their cost of goods sold through their prices. Um, so this will affect pricing. Um, but on, if, if we look at this through the lens of the workers, um, unfortunately, the, the, the ESRI produced a study in January this year that said just the 30 cent increase in the minimum wage last year did have it did impact hours worked by um, by low paid workers. Now, not so much that their pay actually fell because it compensated for the reduction in hours but the reduced hours is a real effect of increasing the national minimum wage and our hope is that this doesn't negatively affect the the, the workers affected now. Okay, looking at uh, that 80 cent rise and if we were to follow through that that's going to be passed on to the consumer, it's ultimately a tax unbeknownst to the government that they have introduced because we're going to be picking it up the consumer, that's a tax on us. In a roundabout way, but that's the reality of it. It is, yeah. That's the point. This doesn't disappear into into the ether. So when when 80 cents an hour is added to the cost of 
your groceries to the cost, <clears throat> excuse me, to the cost of transport, to the cost of security, to the cost of food preparation. And, and people will say, well, it only impacts the, the, those on the minimum wage. It actually doesn't because effectively the national minimum wage acts as a benchmark above which other rates of pay are, are set. We have very few people uh, paying minimum wage to their employees, but we do have people who benchmark uh, their wage rate against it. So that they will have a deal with their workforce, which is national minimum wage plus a euro or plus a euro 50. So this will knock on all the way through everything and it will have an impact on consumer prices, unfortunately. OK, so ultimately you see it as in the present economic circumstances a regressive move on the part of the government. But let me ask you that if things were stable somewhat economically in the country, is it something you would welcome? Well, the the difficulty with setting minimum wages by legislative action is that if we look back over the last five years, wages have risen 20%. If, If we look at average wages throughout the economy, far faster than the national minimum wage. The unfortunate reality is that, you know, wages are set by market demand. When labour is in demand, wages rise really quickly. When when wages, when labour isn't in demand, they will actually fall. And that's the problem with what we're seeing now. If we go into, which is our fear, if we go into some sort of recession over the next number of months, it doesn't actually matter what the government sets the national minimum wage at at all. Uh, businesses will reduce worked hours for their employees. They'll go to short-term or part-time working, or they'll actually make people redundant. And, and if you're redundant, it doesn't matter what the national minimum wage is. That's, mm. that's the worry. Can I ask you, uh, Neil, perhaps to comment on what your members are feeling as a result of what is happening financially and globally? And, and not just talk about it in a snapshot of time, because we tend to get that from businesses. We did it here yesterday, and we, we understand that daily they face situations which are, are in some cases financially crippling. But looking forward to the next year, what are your members saying to you? Well, it, it, we can't just look at this in the microscope of September 22 uh, and disregard what has happened for the last two years. So certain sectors did uh, do very well. You know, online shopping, uh, grocery did very well during the during the lockdown. But lots of other sectors, uh, bricks and mortar shopping for mm-hmm. clothing and household goods and, and so on in the main street uh, did very poorly. And as we came out of lockdown in this year, we also had established work patterns, which are, you know, blended working now does appear to be widely established in the economy. So a lot of retailers and, and shop owners that I talk to have not returned to what they would see as normal footfall. And Mondays and Fridays in particular are very quiet. So we have businesses that are not trading as well as they were in 2019 who've now been hit with wages that are going up really quickly and now energy prices. So uh, it it is a very difficult uh, time for a lot of businesses. And uh, we, we... while we don't see anything changing with that in the short term, we would like, we would hope 
and expect that something is going to be done in the medium to longer term to insulate both businesses and consumers from the worst effects of these price spikes. Okay, Neil, you touched on it there and during the pandemic we were always told that the panacea for business was to pivot online and we don't have a great record in this country. We tend to be behind the curve when it comes to online retailing, particularly the smaller businesses. A lot of them did that. There was uh, grants available from the government to get them set up and to get trained. Was that embraced sufficiently during that period that people can, to an extent, maybe buffer themselves against the impending crisis? It, it did have an impact and businesses are gradually going online. It, the, the, the challenge for Irish businesses is the domestic market is very small. Yeah. And the other issue is that a lot of people think of online sales as you know, just a different way of getting out, you know, stock out of the shop. It's it's not that at all. It is an entirely different uh, supply chain. It is an entirely different marketplace. There are all sorts of logistical challenges involved in it, especially when you're do- dealing with things like clothing uh, and, and significant quantities of clothing are returned. The reverse supply chain for people have handing back clothes is in, in some places up to 40% of stock sold. So people who don't get the business model right with online are going to really struggle to establish it as a profitable uh, marketing channel. And it, there, there's a long learning curve for people in, in going into online sales. Okay, uh, talk to me a little bit about your expectations in terms of what will be delivered in the budget and what your requirements will be for your membership. I mean, I, no doubt you've sat down with Michael McGrath and Pascal Donoghue. They didn't tell you exactly what's going to happen. Did you get a fair hearing or did you get an inkling from them that they would put in place measures that would be more than helpful? Well, just on the immediate issue of, of, of measures, we do understand, although we haven't seen the detail of it yet, that there will be a combination of uh, loans, uh, direct supports and potentially grants made available um, for small businesses to tackle the, the energy crisis. Now, debt, to, to be honest, is not going to be an attractive solution for most businesses. I mean, if you have to borrow money to pay the EFB bill, your business is in a lot of trouble in the base case. And, that, and that's uh, something, just, just from an anecdotal perspective, we had a conversation around this yesterday, and the overwhelming majority of businesses said, loans, forget it, it ain't going to work. And the other problem, Alan, is, and we saw it uh, with the credit guarantee scheme uh, during the pandemic, is even if a business was minded to take on debt to to pay for for difficulties like that, even with the credit guarantee scheme, which has an 80% state guarantee, it still has to go through normal bank lending criteria. And we had an awful lot of members who were actually declined. So I, I think if a small business, a, a small, you know, symbol group retailer was to go into the bank and say, I need 20,000 to pay the EFB bill this month, I would not be betting on their success. Will this be a winter of carnage in the business sector? Uh, we really don't want to talk down the market. No, but um, we have to be realistic in fairness now. I, I do think it is going to be very difficult and expensive to square the circle by which we see huge input cost increases into the goods, grocery and service market 
and how we will avoid passing that on in a way which isn't going to drive the populace even even more uh, even more angry. I mean, you you you've heard on the on the station yourself the complaints about the increase in in price of bread, oil, the, all the food staples. So how we're going to avoid that? Uh, is contingent on what kind of support is available to those who sell goods and services this winter. And is there any sector that is not entirely insulated but are better prepared than others? Um, you know, if if you're the, the the sectors which we understand are going to be most challenged because they. they will struggle to control uh, their use of energy. It's the likes of hospitality. You know, you, you can't tell guests uh, between five Take and Take a cold PM, shower. <laughs> take a cold shower or the lights will be out in the restaurant or your beer will be warm. You know, so they have to use energy when they use it. Similarly, butchers and retailers, you know, by law have to maintain cer- certain temperatures for chilled and frozen goods. Th- their opportunities are limited. Th- there are other service entities, though, that that don't have uh, large energy inputs. And, and of course, you have service businesses that are in the business of deep retrofit and insulation. And hopefully, we'd look forward to them having a very busy winter. So uh, some will do well, others won't. And what we're trying to do is minimise the impact both on the business themselves and on the customers. Very good. We must leave it there. Neil Macdonald, Chief Executive of ISME. Thank you for joining us. Alan Cantwell on LMFM. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. I want to return to a piece we touched on earlier on in the programme with our political correspondent, Sean Defoe, when we spoke about the reality that things are going to change for the hospitality sector when it comes to the rate of uh, VAT they pay. At the moment, it's 9%. We know that Pascal Donoghue, the Minister for Finance, went apoplectic when there was a suggestion that it should be kept at that. He wants it to go up and go up to 13.5%. It was introduced during difficult times as a result of COVID when nothing was happening in the hospitality sector. And some people will say it was the right thing to do, that there comes a point where we have to look at it and then put it back up. But is this the right time to do it? Well, Mark McGowan of Scholars Townhouse Hotel and Restaurant in Drogheda and former president of the Restaurants Association of Ireland joins us in studio. Uh, Thanks for joining us. Um, Your own view on it, I mean, you must accept that it can't stay at 9% forever. Well, first, first of all, if we were to benchmark against our European counterparts, 9% is more a level playing field. Uh, 4.5% increase in, in the VAT rate, which is actually a 50% increase when you look at it differently, is um, it, it'll make us lose our competitiveness to international tourism. It's going to hit a, a market that's already been squeezed between um, energy costs, increased labour costs. So it's not, it's not the right time, first of all. But to be, again, benchmark it against the rest of Europe and to maintain competitiveness as, a, as an industry, as a tourism industry, I think we should remain at nine. Okay, what do you say to the view, and it's been trotted out on so many occasions from the hoteliers, from the restaurateurs, that markets will ultimately dictate the price. And if you were to look at it, not necessarily and anecdotally, and I'm not pointing a finger here at anyone, but gouging went on in the hotel sector. And it's now a case of, you know, you want to gouge, well, you're not going to get the 9%. 
Absolutely, and I think that uh, the gouging that was going on in the city centre, specifically, I think uh, the rest of the country. I don't know if we if if it was happening like def- definitely didn't happen. May not be gouging, but the prices yeah, did it did go did, up oh, significantly. Well, in there, some no, there, I, I I would agree there was price gouging going on within hotels. I'm a hotelier. We didn't rise our prices up to uh, unsustainable levels. Like if there's an event on in Dublin city centre, I think that there's a responsibility for hoteliers nationwide to make sure that. They, um, you know, they they have a real look at their. I mean, they have a social responsibility as well they have to make morals, sure. So, uh, Absolutely, and they didn't. So, their morals went out the window, and they were charging astronomical prices. Yeah. You remember, sure. Again, I'm not pointing fingers no, know, here, but, but you do remember the All Ireland final was a Kerry. They couldn't get a, a hotel. Impossible. In yeah, the, the team couldn't get a hotel. It's too expensive. Look, it, there's a few bad apples that have actually ruined it for everybody else. I think, but when we look around the rest of the country. I think there's, there, there has been value this summer. Uh, there was definitely value up in Drogheda in the northeast and the Boyne Valley. So it's not it's not everywhere. So I, I don't think um, the uh, a rise in the VAT nationwide uh, obviously is 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 the right answer because it just affects all the other hoteliers, affects all the other hospitality establishments, but it also affects the consumer because um, they're being squeezed tightly as well. And a rise in VAT ultimately is going to be a rise in prices and. I don't consumer think again is going I don't to take up consumer that. Is, okay. is able for that. When is the right time to increase VAT? Because I think there has to be an acceptance on the part of all businesses, including yourselves, that you know there comes a time where we, where we have to pay our way. And you're probably saying, well, we're paying our way in other way. In, in, Absolutely, in other we're paying but our we way. But we have we have to reduce the VAT rate. It can't stay at nine. I don't. T- I, dis- I disagree, Alan. I think that again, benchmark against the rest of Europe. I think that and to remain competitive. I think it's a good investment to keep the VAT at 9%. That's where it should be. Um, it was brought in um, around the recession, don't don't forget. Yeah. Michael Noonan brought it in and eventually it was there to stay. It wasn't a temporary measure, so that got lost in translation somewhere. 9% is the correct rate of VAT in my view. OK, let's talk about your own situation. No doubt you're feeling the squeeze as are so many other individuals in the hospitality sector. Is it sustainable to continue operating in the present climate? It's it's near impossible now. It's it's actually quite frightening. Um, we're seventeen years in business now in Scholars Hotel, and um, even during at least during COVID, we had support of government. We don't have support anymore. I think those supports are, are gone. So um, this is a, that, that, that's yeah. a tad unfair. I mean, the government mm. did step up to the plate during COVID, and without their intervention, a lot of uh, people in the hospitality sector would have been been closed down. I mean, a lot of Agreed, them did but go, the, but the, more survived. The, the call at the time was to um, was an ask of the hospitality industry to stay open, keep your doors open. We will protect you. Uh, that was the, that was the message. Make sure you're retaining staff, retaining employees, and and we'll foot the bill. It's not always been the case. Anybody that fell over the thirty percent threshold has lost their entire wage subsidy and has to pay it back. So it, it hasn't been a level playing field. I don't think my business has been affected by it. Um, so I'm, I mean, the future is stark definitely we're the only um, hotel in the region now I think that has a full hotel offering as in uh, food um, accommodation to tourism and um, everything else that goes with you know the the trials and tribulations of running a hotel and I think as a family business I think we're really being squeezed at the moment Will it become a seasonal business for you do you think if we continue to have the financial difficulties that we are having and they press into 2023? I think the demand for accommodation is is going to be there regardless so we will do well from a tourism perspective but my fear is the local market and how they're going to be able to keep up with the continuous increase 
increases that are surrounding going out for a bite to eat because restaurateurs have to unfortunately rise their prices with the rising cost of energy there's now a 7% labour cost rise that's going to hit us in January and it's not just to the minimum wage there's a domino effect with that and it happens all the way across the board because when one goes up the their, their superior has to go up and so forth so it's it's become very difficult you no doubt have read reports and there have been many reports in the newspapers and media over the past number of months where hotels are handing over their hotels to the government to, ho- to, to house, whether it's Ukrainian refugees or the homeless. It's pretty financially rewarding to do that. Is that something you have considered or would consider? It's something that we, we would obviously consider. We're very passionate about tourism um, and we always have been. That's why we got into the industry and it's something we want to make sure that we, we remain doing. We really enjoy the aspects of, of uh, hospitality on a daily basis, dealing with tourists. And if we can find that's our niche and I think that the long term aspects of, of going down the route of housing Ukrainians, which let's face it, there's a humanitarian crisis on there. there is, yeah. So, um, and I totally understand that. But our business is hospitality and that's where that's what we're sticking to at the moment. So, just again, looking at how things are going to develop for you, you have to have a business plan. Whatever you had at the moment has been thrown out. And looking at the business plan on the basis of the figures you have, there has to come an end point for you. Where is that tipping point? Well, it's reliance on, on a strategy from government that is going to either put a price cap on energy costs. Which because, is unlikely. Well, we need to figure something out fast because ultimately I think you're going to see a lot of businesses falling off a cliff edge and I think it's only at that point that there'll be a reaction. Um, I think Scholars is, is strong enough and it'll be able to, it's, because we're established, we'll be able to, to manage through this. We will get through it. We've got through recessions. We've got through pandemics. And now we've a war in Ukraine and we've an energy crisis. So I think we'll get, we will get through this. But I, I think a lot of businesses are going to fall off a cliff edge. And unfortunately, I think it's going to be too little too late unless there's an immediate reaction from government to either go with an energy cap, whether it's a European energy cap or Ireland does something if they're allowed, if they, I'm not sure whether they they, they have, if they're able to do that. But um, we, ne- we need a reactive government now to protect business, to protect jobs. What about your colleagues then in other restaurants around Drogheda? Are they feeling the same pinch or some of them saying it ain't worth it, we're getting out? Well, we can only we can only look around and and see that there's we're definitely a resilient breed of of people. We're at working on a, a, a food tour at the moment. We're just back from Kilkenny, a good group of us, and we're very interested in maintaining what we do have. But we want to encourage more restaurants to come in. Drogheda is only getting bigger. We need more of a choice. There's very few restaurants that are open on a Monday and a Tuesday at the moment, uh, mainly down to um, the ability of getting staff and and the right skill set to maintain a really good you know dining offering but at the moment unfortunately there's not enough staff around the place for for businesses and there's not enough restaurants for the consumer mid midweek so we're actually you know I don't know we're at a bit of a loss I think the town is anyway and, and just looking at tourism and you say you like your DNA is very much rooted in tourism that you want to be at the very heart of that but Do we have to look at changing perhaps the model of what tourism is and what hotels have to offer in order to survive, in order to be that little bit more nimble? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, resilience and, and nimble are terms that we've heard all the way along through um, through the pandemic. But I think the innovation that's been shown and the spirit of hoteliers and restaurateurs is really after shining through. I mean, we've coffee vans in the car park. I've seen people go into the delivery um, delivery service for fine dining meals. It's um, We're a resilient breed of people and I think that we'll, we will push through. We'll find ways to innovate and, and keep things going. But absolutely, you have to adapt and evolve. We've had to do it all the way through our life span as a business and I've no doubt that that personally that, that we will get through it but I just hope that the overall um, you know culture or culinary footprint in Ireland isn't going to change because of this because at the end of the day remember a few years back uh, Falch Ireland had the taste, Tasty Island and these magnificent campaigns that really brought people in to consume Irish food and we're, we're becoming a destination for food but unfortunately I think we're there because I mean we're our own worst enemies because we talk about Irish food oh, that's not great but go travel throughout Europe and you will find it hard to find the offering in terms of what we can offer for food and accommodation yes. and a welcome Absolutely, absolutely. Like, I mean, if you're looking around the area, the Boyne Valley alone, I think of about 35 uh, local producers within my menu somewhere, whether it's a single component that... makes up a dish but um, we definitely have a fantastic offering especially here in the Boyan Valley and we want to do is encourage people in but it's not going to happen unless we maintain that VAT rate at 9% and we start looking at the surround costs of being able to, to run a business because it's very difficult at the moment. Okay, Mark, Mark McGann of Scotlandstown Townhouse Hotel and Restaurant Adrada. Thanks so much for joining us. You're very welcome. Thank you. Michael Reed on LMFM. Welcome back to the programme. Before we leave you this morning, we are joined with an expert on everything who will tell you how to save money, how to fix things and how to help you get through this cost of living crisis. Pat O'Shaughnessy, LMFM reporter and co-owner of CGP O'Shaughnessy Brothers Dundalk, specialists in heating, gas and mechanical installations, joins us this morning. Uh, Pat, thanks for joining us. We were just talking there before we came on air mm-hmm. that if you are good with your hands and you understand how things work and how to fix things, it can save you an absolute fortune. And thankfully you and I are, are <laughs> we'll able to yeah. do that. But, you know, when we when we think about, in all seriousness, the difficulties that people are going to face mm-hmm. into, already they're sitting down having the conversations about, OK, how do we save money? Mm-hmm. Let's limit the amount of heat that we're going to have in the house, you know, designated mm-hmm. for certain hours. But talk us through some of those simple things, particularly around heating and what we can do to save that few extra bob. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, well the one thing I would say to you is uh, if you have an empty room, Turn the radiator off if you don't have a thermostatic rad valve. They're so simple. As you said, they're easy to fit. Most plumbers can fit them quite reasonably. And if you put that in each room, turn it down to a low setting. And if you're not in that room and the doors are kept closed, well, then your radiator will turn off. And that is a saving. It's the simplest of all of the rules that are out there. That's the very first one. The next one I would say to to people is rooms with, with open fires. Open fires are just so Inefficient. Really? Yeah. I was of the view the mm. best way is no. to put on the fire, open the door mm. and let the heat permeate up around the house. Yeah. So that the worst thing. Yeah. And an open chimney puts 75% of its heat out into the atmosphere. And if that room, uh, the fire is not lit in that room, 
it changes the air in that room every 15 minutes. So you're heating that room every 15 minutes. If you want to fire, go for a stove. They're so efficient. They're 75% efficient. Put a dry stove in, not a wet stove. The difference is... What's the difference? Sorry. Yeah, it doesn't heat your radiators. It just heats Ah, the room. And then you can open your hall doors, you said, and swing the heat out to the rest of the house. And they will do that. And you're not losing all this heat up the chimney. So you've moved from 25% efficient to 75%. Now, with that, though, comes a cost in terms of... There is a cost on that. That that is correct. we're trying to stick on the smaller costs here, you know, because um, not all houses are aerated or fabric first build. You know, most of our houses in Ireland are what's called a derated house, which now, is extraordinary. Yeah, you know? I, I want to talk to you about that and the realities of insulating, whether it's externally, instar, internally, the attic and how efficient your heating system is. Is there payback on it in reality, do you think? Yes, there is. Of course, there is. It uh, depends on the length. And basically what you do there is simply divide the cost <laughs> into how, how long it's going to be in the fuel that you might save. It's an easy enough calculation, but obviously the more you spend, the longer the payback. So the simple things like insulate your attic, absolutely well, well worth doing. Now, when you say insulation, what are we talking? 200 mil, 100 mil, what? 300 mil. 300 mil. 300 It's a heck of a lot. Yeah. That so is a lot of gonna, insulation. You're going to lose your attic space, but yeah. that's not what it's for, you know. Put your storage somewhere else. 300 mil in your roof space works absolutely brilliantly and you will notice the difference. If you're in an old style bungalow, cavity insulation, absolutely brilliant. Uh, pump the cavities, works a treat. And of course... And that's, that's grant-aided as well. And they're well. all grant-aided. Yeah. These are grant-aided measures and the grant goes pretty close to the cost of the upgrade. Now, now it's all very well if you have cavity block there mm-hmm. that you can pump the insulation into it but if it's solid block you're into a different proposition there and that you have to put the dry lining either internally or externally. What's Is that 200 mil or 300 uh, mil again? I, I, again it's U-rated so there are different boards with different U-ratings so that's why people don't do it. Originally you could have 100 mil in there and it shortened the room and left the room quite yeah. small but now you can get better U-values on narrower board so that's what you need to look at. Ah, but right. that's a okay. big cost. That's a big, big is it? It, that That is a big cost. Um, Another grant aided uh, is heating controls. Uh, again, easily done by a good, competent plumber. Okay, explain to me that because that's something yeah. that I looked at myself in terms yeah. of trying to install and and what the the benefit would be for me. So let's take your your, your average house in Ireland, which is a semi D. So. Um, you can have three zones in that house. You could have upstairs, you could have downstairs, and you could have your separate hot water, all separately controlled, all thermostatically controlled. So you only heat the part of the house that you're living in. So during the day, if the house is occupied during the day downstairs, you just leave your downstairs circuit off, your upstairs circuit is off, and your water's off because you don't have that requirement during the day. If it's thermostatically controlled, you'll, you'll manage it and you will save fuel. Is it expensive? uh, To do that? No, it's not. The the grant goes a long way. There's a grant of €700 out there for that, and it goes a long way towards that. Right. And that can be installed in most In most most houses, relatively easily. Look, you always have to break a few eggs to make the omelette. Of course. But but yes, it's a relatively easy fix. And and it's it's part of what you must do in the fabric first approach now. All all buildings must be zoned. But prior to two thousand it wasn't done at all and that's a huge amount of our housing stock. It wasn't even done during the Celtic Tiger build. It was two thousand and six before the C rated houses started to come in. So it wasn't done before that point either. So the vast majority of our houses do not have that. Now one thing that drives me absolutely apoplectic at home is doors being left open. Yes. It's amazing the amount of energy that you can save purely by keeping doors closed. 
It, it's true because the natural function of air is once it once it gets hot, it rises, it moves. So even if your house is relatively airtight, and I'm not talking, let's say it's a B-rated house, you're going to have movement of air within that house. So if the doors are open where the cool air is, it's going to want to get to where the hot air is. The hot air will rise, the cool air will come in at the bottom, and you have air movement, which feels like a draft in your house, even though it might be 16 or 17 degrees or 18 degrees, it feels like a draft because it's moving. Keep the doors closed. <laughs> Absolutely, one. You heard it here from the yeah. experts. And Keep another the doors old one. It used to be an old wives' tale. Never sit between the door and the fireplace. If the if it oh, is a on. stove, why yeah, is that? Because the the it takes in combustion air. It has to get its air from somewhere. Ah, yes, of course. So it comes underneath the door, yeah. around the door. So if you're sitting in the path of the fire, even if your room's at twenty two or three degrees, this cooler air is moving across your feet and up the chimney. So if you're sitting at home and you feel the cold a little bit, move your chair to one side. Don't sit between. It's a very very simple thing. Yeah. Don't sit between the fireplace and the door. Your feet will be cold no matter how fit you are. Now, of course, in the majority of the houses now. The they are super insulated, mm-hmm. particularly in relation mm-hmm. to windows. But back mm-hmm. in the day, that wasn't the case. Mm-hmm. So if we look at what we can do in some of the older houses temporarily, mm-hmm. this, we can buy that insulation and you strips can. and put them into the windows. It's you, an easy you, fix. It's an easy fix. And in older houses, they're going to have an older boiler. So condensing technology has come on, come on in, in leaps and bounds. So if you take a modern day condensing boiler, let's say a gas boiler, compared to a boiler that's only 10 or 12 years old. Even if it's maintained and serviced, that 12-year-old boiler, it's never going to be as good as the day it was. Modern boilers, you can turn the water down to 30, 40, 50 degrees, and you can keep that radiator just ticking over. Old boilers cannot do that. That saves you a fortune. So if you're thinking of a spend, I have three or four grand to do in my house, Change the boiler if it's not a condensing boiler. If you can do it to a condensing boiler, you will notice a great saving. I have one of them at home and they yeah. are, they're incredible because yeah, it's, yeah. Dig- it's a digital readout there Correct. for you. It's just a matter of turning it down, getting it to the Correct. right temperature yeah. and do it as well with the heat, not just the water. And Ab- absolutely. Yeah. And you won't notice the difference between a radiator that's 65 degrees and 60, really and truly. But there's a big, big saving in your money if you do that. Go to your boiler, turn it down and you have quick book back in your pocket. Okay, we're coming to the end of this, yes. but we're having this conversation I and you probably remember as well, way back when there was no heating in mm-hmm, homes, mm-hmm, there was a fire and you'd mm-hmm, wake up in the morning mm-hmm. and there'd be ice on the inside mm-hmm. of the window as yes, well as the uh, outside. Remember it well. And we survived Yeah, them. we did. So, so I'm of the view, keep the heat off, see how long you can actually keep it off for the winter. Well, that's a great point. We live in, a, on average, during the summer months, I know we're up against the clock, we live in 17 and 18 degrees. Okay, it's 17 and 18 degrees outside, but it's only 17 and 18 degrees in the house. We live in it. Why can we not live in 17 and 18 degrees in the winter? And with you, we leave it there. Paris yeah. Shelton, thanks so much for joining us. That is it from us for today. We're back with you again, same time tomorrow. Do join us then. For me, for now, good morning. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie LMFM Podcasts. With CNC Carpets, we bring the showroom to you. Or book a new showroom appointment on 087 660 4237. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. 
Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze. Relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.